Hello and welcome. James Kenny here, and this is my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. This is episode number 20 about Daniel O'Connell, the liberator. And as this podcast is not supported by advertising, I would encourage you to become a patron. You can do this by visiting landofthegoldensunset.podbean.com. I have also included an original song written and performed by yours truly at the end of this podcast. I would also encourage you to share this podcast with others on social media. And I hope you like this. Robert Stewart, Lord Castlereagh, 1769-1822, was an Anglo-Irish statesman. Writing to Secretary Cook on the 21st of June, 1800, said, It will be no secret what has been promised and by what means the Union has been carried. He was expostulating against an intention of the government to break some of the bargains of corruption as too excessive now that the deed was accomplished. As the Irish Secretary during the rebellion of 1798, he took the lead in suppressing the rebellion and restoring order. Castlereagh encouraged lenient treatment of the rebels after they surrendered, but many Irish denounced him as a traitor. Criticism increased when he supported Pitt's Act of Union, which abolished the Irish Parliament. Castlereagh was a consistent supporter of Catholic emancipation. In 1805, in England, he became the Secretary of State for War and proved to be highly effective in reforming and recruitment and securing the appointment of Arthur Wellesley as commander in Spain. He resigned in 1809 after government splits and an unsuccessful war. He then fought a duel with George Canning, a fellow Tory, which they both survived. With intense devotion to multiple duties from both the Foreign Office and as leader of the Commons, he was badly overworked and he came under deep psychological distress and in 1822 he committed suicide. Before the Act of Union, the city of Dublin enjoyed a very successful social life among the upper classes, such as doctors, lawyers and merchants, and in particular the castle set. They all enjoyed the sporting tournaments such as cricket, lawn tennis and croquet, which was invented in Dublin. They spent their leisure hours participating and competing when they were not engaged in fox hunting or grouse and pheasant shooting. After the Act of Union was passed, all that came to a sudden decline and Dublin no longer enjoyed the status that was long the envy of visiting dignitaries. Dublin was no longer a metropolis. Some of the adverse effects were that absenteeism was vastly increased, fashion and wealth declined, and political interest and intellectual activity were transferred to London. The great architectural mansions became deserted and were soon to become commercial institutions, museums, schools and warehouses. An example of this is Charlemagne House, sold to the government in 1870, becoming the General Register and Census Offices for Ireland, and is now the Municipal Gallery for Modern Art in Parnell Square. The Catholics were promised that their emancipation would be one sure and definite result of the Union. 
The bishops accepted the word of Lord Cornwallis for this, and the solemn word of government was pledged by him. The honour of Prime Minister Pitt was pledged through his Lord Lieutenant Cornwallis not to embark in the service of government except on the terms of the Catholic privileges being obtained. Pitt retired on the flimsy pretense that he could not be allowed to carry out Catholic emancipation. But he returned once more as Prime Minister and resisted Catholic emancipation to his death. He was as fierce an enemy of the Catholics of Ireland as was his king, Mad George III, and it was only after 29 years of stern effort that the great Irishman Daniel O'Connell succeeded in uniting all the Catholics and their clergy. When he spoke with the voice and support of the millions, and only then did the bigoted British House of Commons open its door to allow this illustrious Irishman to represent them. It is said that later on, George IV wept with sorrow when he had to sign the Catholic Emancipation Bill. Now the millions of Irish Catholics appeared on the scene to plead and agitate for their own legitimate cause. The Protestant minority were, for a long time subsequently, the state. But men ignored the theory and dealt with the fact. From 1810 to 1829, the politics of Ireland were bound up in one question. That was, emancipation or not. The Catholics had many true and staunch friends among the Protestant patriots, men of the calibre of Henry Grattan, John Philpot Kern and Edmund Burke, are names that will always be remembered when the period of Irish history is talked about around the fireside or in the history classes at school and college and, of course, in this podcast. The great victory of Catholic emancipation was mainly the work of one man, and the people of Ireland called him the Liberator. Irishmen of later generations can scarcely form an adequate conception of the Herculean task that confronted the young barrister of 1812. The Catholic bishops for a long time received him with alarm and unconcealed dislike. They were of one mind and voiced their opinion that the extreme ideas of this young O'Connell could only result in mischief. But O'Connell was always very careful and courteous, and never allowed a disrespectful word to be uttered towards them. Owing to the attitude of the bishops, the secular or parochial clergy for a time deemed it prudent to hold aloof from any very prominent participation in the movement, though their sentiments were never doubted. The religious orders, however, enthusiastically entered into the people's cause. The Carmelite Church in Clarendon Street, Dublin, became the place of assembly, freely given by the community, as the rallying point for the young Catholic leaders. O'Connell laid down the proposition, Ireland cannot fight England. Above all, he knew that there remained, at the worst, to an oppressed people, unable to match their oppressors in a military struggle, the grand policy of passive resistance, by which the weak can drag down the haughty and the strong. Moulding all his movements on these principles, he resolved to show his countrymen that they could win their rights by actions strictly within the Constitution. He happily combined in himself all the qualifications for guiding them through that system of guerrilla warfare in politics, which could enable them to defeat the British government without violating the law. 
O'Connell was quick to meet each dexterous evolution by some equally ingenious artifice. No man but himself could have carried the people as he did safely and victoriously through such a campaign. Young Irishmen can scarcely realise the discouragements, the difficulties and the reverses that often flung him backwards, apparently defeated. But with O'Connell there was no such word as fail. The people of Ireland trusted him and followed him with the docile and trusted obedience of troops obeying the commands of a chosen general. For them, and for the service of Ireland, he gave up his professional prospects. He lived for them, and was prepared to die for them. An unfortunate encounter took place when he was set on by the Orange-controlled Corporation of Dublin, who intended to shoot him down in a duel. The one chosen to carry out this nefarious deed was John D'Astaire, an experienced duelist, but O'Connell had no fears as he could handle himself well with pistol and sword. He met his opponent at eighteen paces, and laid him mortally wounded on the field. Distressed by the killing, O'Connell offered to share his income with D'Astaire's wife. She consented to a small allowance for her daughter, which O'Connell regularly paid for more than thirty years until his death. Some months later, O'Connell was engaged to fight a second duel with the Chief Secretary for Ireland, Robert Peel. O'Connell's repeated references to him as Orange Peel, a man good for nothing except to be a champion for Orangeism, being the occasion. Only O'Connell's arrest in London en route to the rendezvous in Ostend prevented the encounter, and the affair went no further. But in 1816, following his return to faithful Catholic observance, O'Connell made a vow in heaven, never again to put himself in a position where he might shed blood, in expiation for the death of D'Esther. He is said afterward to have accepted the insults of men whom he refused to fight with pride. The English ministry found themselves powerless to grapple with such an adversary. His policies broke their hearts and maddened the brain of English oppression. They pointed out that emancipation was inconsistent with the coronation oath and that England would spend her last shilling and her last man rather than grant it. It was declared that a week after emancipation, Irish Catholics and Protestants would be cutting each other's throats, that there would be a massacre all over Ireland. Peel and Wellington threatened war at first, but eventually had to come into the House of Commons to tell the assembled Parliament that Catholic emancipation must be granted. Daniel O'Connell, 1775 to 1847, was born at Carhen near Carisivine, County Kerry, to the O'Connells of Derry Nan, a wealthy Roman Catholic family that under the penal laws had been able to retain land only through the medium of Protestant trustees and the forbearance of their Protestant neighbours. His parents were Morgan O'Connell and Catherine O'Molan. His uncle was Daniel Charles, Count O'Connell, an Irish brigade officer in the service of the King of France and twelve years a prisoner of Napoleon. O'Connell grew up in Derrynan House, the household of his bachelor uncle Morris Huntingcap O'Connell, landowner and justice of the peace, who made the young O'Connell his heir presumptive. In 1791, under his uncle's patronage, O'Connell and his elder brother Morris were sent to continue their schooling in France. 
revolutionary upheaval and their mob denunciation as young priests and little aristocrats persuaded them in January 1793 to flee their Jesuit college at Dawau. They crossed the English Channel with the brothers and United Irishmen John and Henry Shears. The experience is said to have left O'Connell with a lifelong aversion to mob rule and violence. O'Connell appeared to have had little faith in the United Irish revolutions or in their hopes of French intervention. He set out the rebellion in his native Kerry when, in 1803, Robert Emmett faced execution for attempting an insurrection in Dublin. He was condemned by O'Connell as the cause of so much bloodshed Emmett had forfeited any claim to compassion. Two Germans, Karl Marx, 1813-1883, a philosopher, historian and economist, and his friend, Friedrich Engels, 1820-1895, gave the following warning about the end of capitalism in 1848. A spectre is haunting Europe, the spectre of communism. This came just as European nations were in disarray. In France, the monarchy had been restored after the revolution of 1789 had removed it. Now the people were once more angry with their king. As Marx published the Communist Manifesto, demonstrations erupted in Paris. Protesters took to the streets and fought with soldiers. Marx rushed to join the struggle, but by the time he arrived, the king had fled and a republic had been declared and crowds of cheering revolutionaries filled the squares. Marx says, The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggle, meaning that history is about dispute and conflict between rich and poor, bosses and workers. He had predicted the overthrow of the capitalist bosses, the bourgeoisie, by the workers, the proletariat and Marx believed he had seen this in Paris. He hoped the uprisings were the start of this. However, to his dismay, a few months later, Europe's revolutions fizzled out, and it seemed the end of capitalism was going to be a long and drawn-out affair. Although it had been illegal to educate a boy abroad, this was changed by the 1792 Relief Act, which also made it possible for him and others to become barristers. O'Connell was called to the Irish Bar in May 1798. He married his third cousin, Mary O'Connell from Tralee in 1802. They had four daughters, Ellen, Catherine, Elizabeth and Ricarda, and four sons, Morris, Morgan, John and Daniel. Consistent with the position he had taken publicly in relation to the rebellions of 1798 and 1803, O'Connell focused upon parliamentary representation and popular but peaceful demonstration to induce change. No political change, he offered, is worth the shedding of a single drop of human blood. His critics, however, were to see in his ability to mobilise the Irish masses an intimation of violence. It was a standing theme with O'Connell that if the British did not reform the governance of Ireland, Irishmen would start to listen to the counsels of violent men. O'Connell insisted on his loyalty 
greeting George IV effusively on his visit to Ireland in 1821. However, he was willing to defend those accused of political crimes and of agrarian outrages. In his last notable court appearance, the Donnerail Conspiracy Trials of 1829, O'Connell saved several tenant white boys from the gallows. In 1828, O'Connell defeated a member of the British cabinet in a parliamentary by-election in County Clare. His triumph as the first Catholic to be returned in a parliamentary election since 1688 made a clear issue of the Oath of Supremacy, the requirement that MPs acknowledge the King as Supreme Governor of the Church and thus forswear the Roman Communion. Fearful of the widespread disturbances that might follow from continuing to insist on the letter of the oath, the government finally relented, with the Prime Minister, the Duke of Wellington, persuading the King, George IV, and the Home Secretary, Sir Robert Peel, engaging the Whig opposition, the Catholic Relief Act became law in 1829. The act was not made retroactive, and so O'Connell had to stand again for election. He was returned unopposed in July 1829. He had founded the Order of Liberators in 1826 and took his seat in Parliament in 1829. Such were his powers of oratory that a crowd of three quarters of a million people travelled to the Hill of Tara, the seat of the ancient kings and princes of Ireland, to hear him speak of support for the abolition of the Union. At the Hill of Tara, on the feast day of the Assumption, the 15th of August, 1843, it took O'Connell's carriage two hours to proceed through the crowd, accompanied by a harpist playing Thomas Moore's The Harp That Once Through Tara's Halls. O'Connell planned to close the campaign on the 8th of October, 1843, with an even larger demonstration at Clontarf, on the outskirts of Dublin. As the site of Brian Boru's famous victory over the Danes in 1014, it resonated with O'Connell's increasingly militant rhetoric. The time is coming, he had been telling his supporters, when you may have the alternative to live as slaves or die as free men. Beckett suggests O'Connell mistook the temper of the government, never expecting that his defiance would be put to the test. But it was when troops occupied Clontarf. O'Connell submitted at once. He cancelled the rally and sent out messengers to turn back the approaching crowds. Even though he had called off the rally, he was charged with an offence, tried and found guilty in February 1844. O'Connell and his son John were sentenced to 12 months in prison for conspiracy. Following his last appearance in Parliament, and describing himself oppressed with grief, his physical power departed, O'Connell travelled on a pilgrimage to Rome. He died, aged 71, on the 15th of May, 1847, in Genoa, Italy. In accord with his last wishes, O'Connell's heart was buried in Rome, at Sant'Agata di Gotti, then the chapel of the Irish College, and the remainder of his body was interred in Glasnevin Cemetery in Dublin. During the Irish College's tenure at St Agatha, the church became the burial place for the heart of the Irish political leader, Daniel O'Connell. When the Liberator died at Genoa, he commended his soul to God 
his body to Ireland, and his heart to Rome. The memorial erected to him left St. Agatha when the Irish College decamped to the Coelian Hill, but O'Connell's heart may still be buried in the crypt of St. Agatha. James Kelly writes regarding the code of honour of the jewel as follows. As this event, and several hundred other examples bear witness, honour was a matter of vital import to anyone who believed himself a gentleman in early modern Ireland. Though seldom discussed as other than a theoretical abstraction, honour possessed a tenacious hold on the minds and lives of gentlemen in Ireland between the mid-17th and mid-19th centuries, when duelling flourished. In effect, it provided each individual with a code of behaviour by which he should live. Because ostracism from the elite was the penalty for being perceived to be without honour, or to have brought dishonour upon oneself, and, by implication and extension, upon the privileged class to which one belonged or aspired to belong. It is for this reason that so few challenges were declined. Only an individual of exceptional resolution refused a challenge, even if convinced that it was unwarranted, because it could be interpreted as an action of a coward rather than a man of principle. This is well illustrated by the decision of John Beresford, an aristocrat of several generations standing, whose brother was the Earl of Tyrone and who was one of the commissioners of the revenue, to exchange shots with Sir Edward Newenham in 1778, though he plainly believed that Newenham was not his social equal. As this implies the damage that could be done to an individual's reputation by mishandling an affair of honour was enormous. In 1792, the colourful Dublin radical James Napper Tandy was thoroughly discredited in the eyes of his radical colleagues who purported to wish to bring the edifice of privilege tumbling down as well as of aristocrats when his bungling response to a belittling speech by the Solicitor General in the House of Commons convinced many that he was a coward and a poltroon entirely without honour. Poor Tandy, William Drennan observed piquantly, after 18 years' struggle against his own interest in the public cause, has nearly lost his reputation as a gentleman in a quarter of an hour. The ambivalence of Irish society towards duelling intensified in the early 19th century. The number of duels taking place remained substantial, though the course continued to show less indulgent towards errant duelists. One reason for the continuing vitality of the Code of Honour during these years was the enthusiasm with which Catholic gentlemen, who were now free to carry arms, appealed to their pistols to avenge insult. Dueling was contrary to the law of their church. But few Catholic gentlemen were troubled by this. The most famous encounter involving a Catholic was the politically symbolic exchange between Daniel O'Connell and John de Astaire in 1815. O'Connell would have preferred not to fight, but he was vividly aware of the damage to his reputation if he refused the challenge. His successful dispatch of de Astaire affirmed his status as the Catholic's champion. More significantly, 
Having demonstrated his bravery under fire, he refused subsequently to fight any more duels following an aborted encounter with Sir Robert Peel. O'Connell's decision not to offer or to accept any challenges mirrored the rising level of opposition to the Code of Honour. More and more people in the 1820s and 30s concurred with the young W.E. Gladstone that duelling was barbarous, inhuman and unchristian and urged the authorities to take decisive measures to abolish it. Such calls multiplied as a consequence of the great moral change taking place in Irish society at this moment, which prompted a number of evangelically-minded Protestants to establish a short-lived Association for the Suppression of Duelling in 1830. The organisation did not emulate the high hopes of its founders, but the widespread revulsion following the controversial death of Standish Stammer O'Grady in Dublin in 1830 hastens the demise of duelling in the capital. It continued to be practised for a time thereafter in Munster and Connacht, but the opposition of the Royal Irish Constabulary made it increasingly difficult for intending duelists to meet, free from the threat of interruption. Only the most determined protagonists were prepared openly to defy the law, and by the mid-1840s, most differences were settled without an exchange of shots. Before Daniel O'Connell died, and while he was in prison, a more militant movement emerged in Ireland, calling themselves the Young Irelanders. Mitchell Henry, 1826 to 1910, was an English financier, politician and Member of Parliament in the House of Commons of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. He was MP for County Galway from 1871 to 1885. Henry was educated at the University College London, where he read for a degree in medicine, eventually becoming a Fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons. He became a senior consultant at the Middlesex Hospital in London by the time he was 30. In 1852, he married Margaret Vaughan of Quilly House, County Down. He built Kylemore Castle in Connemara, County Galway, between 1863 and 1868. He had nine children, five daughters and four sons. The youngest son, Lorenzo Mitchell Henry, became an international pigeon shot and invented the Henright shotgun cartridge. On the 26th of October 1875, Mitchell Henry delivered a speech at the Rotunda in Dublin on the financial and economical condition of Ireland, in which he said, inter alia, have the Irish people prospered in a material and financial point of view by the Union, or have they, by the Union, been not only enslaved, but also impoverished? In 1782, Ireland started, without debt, on her career as an independent nation but connected with Great Britain through a common allegiance to the same crown. It was virtually acknowledged that the king was bound to govern Ireland, not through his crown of England, but through his crown of Ireland, conferred upon him by the Irish nation and worn by him in conjunction with that of Great Britain. The ensuing 11 years were the brightest and most flourishing in Irish history. The removal of restrictions on her trade and the development of Ireland's internal industries had their natural and usual effect in greatly increasing 
the national wealth. In the year 1800, the date of the Union, the debt of Ireland in round numbers amounted to 28.5 million sterling. The debt of England at that time was, in round numbers, 450.5 million sterling. After being unfairly dragged into the war against Republican France, in January 1817, 16 years after the Union, Ireland was insolvent. Ireland owed upwards of 112.5 million sterling, besides the interest on this debt. On the 5th of May 1800, Henry Grattan had said, Rely on it that Ireland, like every enslaved country, will be made to pay for its subjugation. Robbery and taxes ever follow conquest. The country that loses her liberty loses her revenues. Ireland had been asked to pay taxes in the proportion of two-fifteenths, when one-thirteenth would have been a fairer charge. Ireland could not pay this exorbitant tax, and an overwhelming debt became inevitable. Before Daniel O'Connell died, and while he was in prison, a more militant movement emerged in Ireland, calling themselves the Young Irelanders. should have to die I killed a man a stare in June in Dublin the pain and grief oh lord I could cry from Derry Nan and Kerry I came forward Daniel O'Connell is my name to fight the act of union and new freedom for the downtrodden people of the South and seal. 
city streets can be active union was renewed. Loved his country dearly, his heart still lies in Rome. He rode around in a carriage of gold, like it was his throne. Daniel the Liberator, a man of great purpose and zeal. Statues stand proud on our city streets and 